If you have your Bibles today, turn to 1 John chapter 3. In those verses I read a little earlier, 1 John 3, 19 through 24. The first 30 years of my wife and I's marriage, Chris and I didn't very often drive cars that were in the best condition. Um, in fact, the first good car I ever had, brand new, um, we had it just for a few weeks, and we were going on vacation, and my friend really needed to use it. It broke, his broke down. So I said, are you going to drive it anywhere? You can do a lot, you know, no, I just need to run a couple errands and go to the grocery store for my family once. So I got back, and he had wrecked it. Scraped the whole side of it all the way down, everything else. And after that, it went, down, it went all downhill from there. Uh, we've owned many vans, trucks, various sedans. Most of them have been fairly junky, I would say. They were 10 years older or older. And I can say, after all those decades of those kind of cars, I'm pretty accustomed to, in fact, I would go so far as to say that I'm pretty well-versed in the knowledge of indicator lights. Do you know what indicator lights are? On the dashboard of your car, depending on your make and model of the car, I have come to know that there are usually between 10 and 20 indicator lights. I have seen them all. Oil pressure, tire pressure, battery alert, low fuel, seat belt, brake warning, washer fluid, airbag, and I haven't even got started. I know the symbols for all of them. I don't have to look them up in the manual anymore. I have seen them all. I have seen them more than once. I have seen more than one of them at the same time. In fact, I had one car that was so bad that it lit up on the time I turned it on, it lit up. You thought it was Christmas on there. There were so many lights on that dashboard. I could have swore one time my car was so bad that a little light came on and the letters R.I.P. are right there. <laughs> At first, when you have cars like that and the indicator lights come on fairly often, when I first had a car and started doing that, I go, oh, no, 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 I, I, gotta, I called them right there that today. I, I got to get an appointment. I got to get this fixed. Man, I don't want to have, it's the only car I've got. This has got to work. But after a while, you came to the realization, right, over time, what? Indicator light, schmindicator light, I don't know, right? It, nothing happened when it came on. I expected the car to stop, start chugging, pullovers, smoke come out. None of it. None of it. So I decided, hey, I don't have that much money right now. I'm going to let it ride. <laughs> and I did. In fact, one day when I, I came to Faith Baptist Church as a pastor, it was one of my first few weeks here. I didn't know where things were, okay? And I had a used car, and it wasn't in great condition, as usual, right? And so the gas light came on, and I've never run out of gas. And I feel like, it's just like all the other indicator lights. It probably doesn't mean anything. So I'm driving on Whitehorse toward the circle, you know, toward the circle, and my car starts chugging, chugging. I go, no, it can't be. It's actually working for a change, and I ran out of gas. And I got out of the car. I didn't know where to go. I didn't even know where the nearest gas station was. So I just got out of my car. I didn't have a cell phone. And I started walking. And I walked down, and lo and behold, it wasn't too far. Shell station was right there on the corner. So I walked over to the shell station, and I told him, I'm from Faith Baptist Church. Oh, yeah, we have an account here. I go, praise God. 
So here's what he does. He goes, I'll fill it up for you, put it on your account. I'll give you the gas can. You walk back and you put it in. So I did. I went back, I put it all in, and I drove to church. And you're the first people I've ever told this story to. <laughs> Why? Because when you have an indicator light on, you shouldn't ignore it for very long, if at all, right? Listen, John and his epistle that we've seen has 12, even dozen, indicator lights. And these are indicator lights on the dashboard of your life. And they come on spiritually, and they have messages, just like the ones in your car. And what they are there designed to do is they're to tell you when something is spiritually wrong in your life. And all of them, you can, I can give you all the references, but you could look it up, because they're marked off by this little prepositional phrase, by this, by this. There are 12 of them. In fact, our text, if you look at verses 19 through 24, is bracketed by two indicator lights. Can you see it there in verse 19? It starts off by this. See it? See, the indicator light is coming on. He wants to show you something about your true condition of your heart. And then he ends with it in verse 24. He says, and by this we know. See, 10 out of 12 times. I read, I read them all this week. And here's the little formula that 10 out of the 12 look like when the indicator light comes on. By this, and it always adds this phrase, other than two, we know. Here's how you know if there's something wrong or something right going on in your spiritual life. They're indicator lights. There are a dozen of them. And he wants to give us an idea this morning. As you look into God's word in this passage, he wants you to examine and say, look at your dashboard. Look at the dashboard of your light. You have lights going off this morning, I think, as you hear this message and you look at this passage. You're going to see whether you have indicator lights on. But the question is, are you going to ignore them? Are you going to, ah, indicator lights, indicator I don't have to do anything right now. See, God says, no, I want you to take a look at them because they're going to tell you what's really going on in your heart. See, today, every single person in this room who knows Jesus Christ, you have one of two types of hearts. And the Bible in this paragraph is going to talk about both of them, and they have indicator lights. One is called a condemning heart. And the condemning heart is when you look at what you believe and you look at how you behave and they don't match. It creates a condemning heart. It condemns you and you begin to doubt and you don't have assurance and you spend your life, Christian life, paralyzed, not really doing much of, but instead of worrying what's going to happen when you die. See, that's where you can be this morning and perhaps some of you are because I'll tell you this, when I was a lot younger, I was there. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But the other one is a confident heart, the one that God really wants you to have. He wants you to have assurance. He wants you to know that you're right with him. He wants you to know that you have a relationship with him. And so he's given us the indicator lights, and they're going to show you which one that you have this morning. God wants everyone in here who is a child of God to have a confident heart every single day. So let's look at both of these kinds of hearts and the indicator lights, and unpack each one, and all along the way, you do me a favor. You ask yourself, which one of those hearts really more characterizes and defines my spiritual life? First, a condemning heart. The scripture says in verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth. Remember that little origin preposition, of? It's that we are from the truth. The truth resides into us about God's word. And it, it reassures our heart 
before him. I was saved at 12 years old on November 19th. Glenn Schunk was an evangelist who came to our church, preached a week of messages. On Friday night, he preached on hell, and it scared me. I'd gone to church. I was on the Bible quiz team for little kids. I was doing all kinds of things. I knew all about salvation, been to church my whole life. That night was different for me. He preached on hell. I was scared about it, certainly as anybody would say, they didn't want to go there. So I went forward at the end of that service, during the, and they had counselors that were ready to come. My Sunday school teacher of sixth grade happened to be in line next, and I, he took me aside, showed me from the scriptures how to know Jesus Christ, and that night I trusted him as my Lord and Savior. The next three years, I went to junior high. I know that we don't have junior high anymore, but it used to be called that instead of middle school. And that was 7th, 8th, and ninth grade. I went to public school my whole life up until 10th grade. And in public school, I worshipped sports because that's what I really lived for, to be flat out honest. I played sports every time there was a sport, I played it. Um, and for three years, I had a spiritual indicator light going off. When I was 12, it went off. Because when I went to church... I knew all the Bible answers, and I was a nice kid, and my family was in there, my dad was a deacon. I knew I, all those things were true, but when I went to public school, I was like Jekyll and Hyde, completely different person. I wanted to be popular. I wanted people to like me. I wanted to be a success in school. I wanted to be the guy that was known to play sports really, really well. And so I lived this double life for three years, and every single weekend, the indicator light would come on. I'd go to bed at night putting my head on the pillow, wondering if I didn't wake up, where in the world would I spend eternity? Three years, I put the indicator light off. I ignored it as much as I possibly could. But my mind would kept going back to Glenn Shunk and the message about eternity. That summer when I turned 15, I went out for the public high school. We had a large high school, about 2,500 students in it. It was well known for its sports program in Northwest Ohio. And I wanted to go. Baseball was my worst sport, but I wanted to get in because it was the first sport that I could get into. Um, So I played second base. I fielded a grounder. And I went back, slipped in the mud because it had rained before in the infield. And I didn't know it, but I had a birth defect that had a weakness in my bone. I braced the ground, and it snapped my arm basically in half. Both my ulna and radius were completely side by side. It was so bad that my bones started coming out of my skin until my coach's wife grabbed it and held it together with her hand. It was that bad. Um, I had to have, and I won't go through because I've given you the story before probably, that terrible, horrible thing to get that back in place. And I couldn't play baseball. During that summer, my youth pastor preached a message in our youth ministry about giving your life to Christ. And I thought I had, but I realized I really never had. I did. I changed my life. We had opened a Christian school in our church two years earlier. I had wanted no part of it, none, because their sports program was dinky, little, and almost non-existent. I gave my life to Christ, and I also gave my future to Christ, and I went to the Christian school. Three years into it, we won all three state championships in basketball and other sports as well because God brought unbelievable amount of talent and size to that little teeny school. And God said, you honor me, I'll honor you. It changed my life. It changed my life. When I gave my life to Christ and got serious about my behavior and my belief matching, it did wonders for me. It gave me assurance. I've never doubted since those times. By this, see, by this, by this what, he says, 
by this. The fact that verse 18 says that love abides in you and you don't hate. That's the by this. This is how. This is how that you can know, he says. See, assurance in your life, if you're doubting this morning and if you're in that place where the indicator light is on the dashboard of your salvation and it comes on and you're wondering where you really are, see, it's because you don't have, it doesn't sink up in your life. You believe things and you are orthodox, but your orthopraxy isn't quite the same. And you're here this morning, and he says, here's how you can know objectively you are of the truth. Because in verse 18, he just told you, you can't love and say you love the brother. You can't do it in word or talk. Remember verse 18 right before this? You can't do it in word or talk. You have to do it in deed and in truth. The truth is when you live it out and demonstrate it. And the word deed is the word works. It's used three times, 8, 12, and 18. The works of the devil the works of Cain, and the works of God in you. Everybody is doing works, not to gain merit or salvation. It's all of grace to be saved. But if you are truly saved in God's word and his spirit abides in you, you will do works, not the devil's, not like Cain we saw last week. God's works in you, he says. That's how you have assurance that your life looks like loving God by loving others and the works Scary verse, Titus 1.16 says, They confess to know God, but they deny him by his, their works. Oh, they say verbally. See, they've got the talk down. They know the Christian lingo. They have the language down. But it says this, but their lifestyle. See, Sunday, let's put it in my terms. Sunday, you're all of that, and you know what to say, when to do, when to act and pray. You know all that. But Monday through Saturday, it's quite a different story. The Bible hardly ever gets open. Prayer never hardly ever happens except in an emergency. And thinking of God throughout the day would almost be a joke. In other words, when your life doesn't align, when your objective and your subjective don't work together, you're never going to have assurance. And John, this isn't the first time he's offered up a serving of this apparent contradiction. Remember chapter 1, if we say, if we say, but then he says it's what you have to do. And sometimes he preaches to us about this contradiction because some people really just don't know God. They profess to know him, but really the way they live denies that they know him. It's a horrible thing because, Lord, Lord, on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not do this in your name? He'll say, I never knew you because the message we need to hear about the matching up matters because there are some people that it's eternal, it's just going to matter in eternity. But there are some people, John says, that need to hear this message and the apparent contradiction because as Christians, they're not doing anything for God. They're not loving the way they ought to. See, this whole passage is filled with commandments about being obedient and about abiding in him and doing things because you ought to do, because you're moved in your heart by God. It's not just a bunch of externalism. It's not Christianity is not a boatload of rules that you check off because I did them right. No, it's more than that. It's about loving and he says in verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, whenever, in other words, it's going to, you're going to think about your failures. You're going to think about the times that you were unkind and the words that you said and how the opportunities to do good, you pass them by. Because whenever our heart condemns us, well, how would it condemn us? Verse 17, remember last week? You see someone who has need, you have this money and the goods of this world, and it says, but you look at him and it close, you close your heart, he says. See, that's what our heart condemns us. 
I should have helped him. I should have given that. I should have sacrificed. I should have been a part of that. And I wasn't. He says, see, that's when your heart condemns you. You look at your life and say, why wasn't I part of that? Why didn't I do that? Remember the Wizard of Oz? How many of you? Everyone's seen that, right? At least once. Are you American? All right. One of my favorite scenes, Dorothy, Scarecrow, Cowardly Lion, Tin Man, they're all appearing. They've got an audience, personal audience, with the Wizard of Oz. You walk in, his head's on the thing. You know, it's all smoke and the fire. You know how it goes. And they're all nervous like crazy because they don't know any better. They think he's some great, powerful Oz wizard dude, right? He's... So the, what happens? The Tin Man, shaking and rattling, steps up to him. And what I would like to ask you, and he interrupts him. He goes, do you dare ask me for a heart? Remember that? He wanted a heart. Why? Because he knew how important it was. Do you ever think that you're like that? You come before God, you come to church shaking a little bit. You know why? I don't know, Pastor Walker. I look at my life sometimes. Where's my heart? Where's my heart in it? Why, am I, why don't I want to and love to get into the Bible? Why don't I want to really serve in a ministry and help other people? Where's my heart? You see, he really had a heart because at the end of the show, he says, oh, you don't need a heart. You just need to know how it looks like when you actually use it. And he gave him a piece of paper or whatever it was he gave him or that little heart with a clock in it. He says, it's not really that. It's not the external. It's you. See, that's what it is. For all of us, isn't it? We're all ten then, and we all before God saying, where is the heart that you want me to have? Have you ever felt that? You ever look around, you ever look at your life, and you watch someone do this, and you watch them that, and where's mine? How come I don't think of that? Why don't I have the initiative? Blessed assurance, I love that old hymn. And it's got both objective and subjective parts to it. You ever read it that way? The first verse has this little objective truth about your salvation Heir of salvation, purchase of God. See all these theological truths? Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. That's theology. That's truth. It's right out of this book. This is who we are. This is what he's done for us. But the third verse goes like this. Filled with his goodness, lost in his love. You see what the writer is doing, Fanny Crosby? She's saying like, yeah, I know all the things about what God has done for me, but you know what? It changes me. I'm filled with his goodness. I'm doing things. I'm honoring him, and I'm lost. Oh, what a beautiful phrase. Lost in his love. You ever been that? You ever been so lost in his love? It doesn't matter how tired you are, no matter what it costs you. You're not really concerned about what other people think. You're so lost in his love. I'm doing that. I'm serving. I'm getting up really early. I'm staying up late. I feel exhausted, but it is so good. So good. Lost in his love. See, when our heart condemns us as beloved children of God, because that isn't the heart that we have, we can have this assurance. Look at the text again in verse 20. What do you do when your heart condemns you? Well, here's what the verse says. God is greater than our heart. Isn't that awesome? God is greater. That little phrase is used three different times 
Chapter 3 and verse 20, our text, 4 and verse 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is the testimony of God, chapter 5 and verse 9. John loves it because Jesus, read the gospel of John. He loves that little phrase about how God is greater. See, when you and your love for God and others isn't what it should be, you know what we go back to to get assurance? His heart for us. When we don't have a heart for him and others, we go back to this and say, well, let me rest on this. But God's heart is greater than all that because his heart for me is greater than my heart for others. And I love this piece, this little piece. God's heart is greater, and here he says, and he knows everything. And you said, Pastor Walker, that's just a problem, isn't it? He does know everything. No, no, it's a positive. He knows everything. See, you can find all kinds of things wrong. Oh, I can't believe I didn't do that, do that. But see, you don't have the capacity sometimes to remember. You've forgotten the kindness and the words and the encouragement and the prayer and the little things that you made and you gave to your neighbor and how you helped somebody out. It wasn't life-changing events, but it was kindness. It was love. It was demonstrated. But we love to condemn ourselves in failure, don't we? And sometimes it's good for us and sometimes it's not accurate. Sometimes it's real, though, and we need to be assured. Do you remember... After Jesus was resurrected, he met with Peter on the shore. Peter jumped out of the boat, ran to the shore. Jesus had the fire going, and he's making food for everybody for breakfast. Jesus and Peter have this little dialogue. You know it. Peter had denied Jesus three times when he said he would love Jesus and never do anything, and he was the worst failure. And Jesus asked him, do you love me? hard to hear because he said he would be more committed than everybody else and he was least of all committed other than Judas see his heart was condemning him do you love me you know Lord I love you Lord I love you twice but do you get the third one Jesus says Peter do you love me the third time Peter was so grieved you know it says Lord you know everything John 21 17 this phrase, you know everything, you know that I love you. You know what he's saying? Lord, I don't love you like I said I did before, but you know even though I failed you, even though I have dropped the ball, even though I haven't been as loving and compassionate, Lord, you still know, even though that's all true, you see the big picture. You know all my life. You know what's really going on in here. No, I failed you. You know I love you. Aren't you glad for that? I'll see, when our heart condemns us, When our heart condemns us, we go back to this. God is greater than our heart. Jesus sees the big picture. He knows all that you really are and all that you're about in your life like he did for Peter. See, God's assurance, heart assurance, to a condemning heart is not how great you are, but despite despite the fact of how you failed, he still loves you. So a spiritual indicator light comes on. On the dashboard of our life, and it's condemning heart one. It's a big heart with an X to it because it condemns us when we fail. We fall short, and the demands of such an incredible, cruciform love seem daunting to us. But how do I go, Pastor Walker? How do I go from condemning heart to confident heart? How do I get the indicator light to turn off? He's going to tell you how to go from one to the other in verses 21 through 24. He starts out with this, and it's no small word. One word, pregnant with incredible meaning. 
It says, beloved. See that? And he uses it off and on with little children as vocatives and describing our identity all throughout this epistle. He says, this is who you are. Let me give you this. This is the number one part of your identity. You know what it is? You are loved by God. Loved by God. It's followed by three, I'll get technical, conditional phrases in a row. Third class, which means they're possible. This is probably happening, maybe happening in your life, he says. And it says, for whenever, that's, the con- that's, the, that's what it means, the translation. For whenever our heart condemns us, and it's probably going to, God is greater than our heart. Beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, there it is, verse 21. If it doesn't condemn us, we have confidence. When you have the objective truth down, you believe the truth, but you behave the truth in the way that you love others in particular. See, he says that's when you get a confident heart. You exchange the condemning one for a confident one. And he says you can have it before God You know how important this is? Have you ever been in a relationship, maybe your marriage, maybe a friendship, maybe with someone at church that you thought you were close to, and you thought they really loved you, things went south, they were fickle, you did some wrong, and it wasn't even that serious, but it was over, right? You ever come to church, and you have this idealistic idea in your mind about church people and I can't believe they said that and I can't believe they did that and you get this idea in your mind that this is how it should be and they disappoint you and they fail you and you're not secure in that love as much as you thought. You have to come home to your marriage and wonder if it's really going to end or is it going to go on or not. Those are horrible places to live. Horrible places to live. Here's what God says. You don't have to do that. Not in your relationship with me. You can have confidence. And can I tell you, there is a blessing to that confidence because it says you can have confidence before him in his presence. And two times, confidence is used in 1 John to describe confidence on the day of judgment when you stand before God to give an account for your life. And the other two times are about prayer. And I think that's what this is. This is about prayer. I have found this in all my interactions with people, including myself when I was young. When you have no assurance of your salvation, here's what by and large happens. You rarely pray at all, and secondly, you rarely pray for others. You know why? Because your whole life is warped focus on whether you're going to go to heaven or not. So you know what is paralyzed? Your prayers. We don't pray at all hardly unless it's prayer, God, please help me, but it's all about you. And here's what the Bible says. You can have confidence in his presence that if we ask, verse 22, we will receive, if we ask whatever we ask, we'll receive from him. That is not a blank check. You may hear these TV preachers. Oh, you need to pray. You have enough faith. You can ask whatever you want. God, give me a Cadillac. God, give me this. There's a Greek word for it. Garbage. It's garbage. It's not whatever you want to ask you can get. no. You see the conditions in the text? If you have a confident heart, if your life is living out Jesus, believing in him, loving other people, and then he adds on after this verse, if you keep his commandments. In other words, if you're walking a life pleasing to him, your whole desires and the things that you want in life, they will be aligned with his. And when your life and what you want in this kingdom, in this world is aligned with his, ask what you want. Ask, and you'll get it. 
But not when you're living out your own story. Not when you put aside everybody else and the love that you have is really only for you, not for others. He says, when you live that way, you, you can't ask anything. But if you live like Jesus lived, in fact, he even says those little words, because we keep his commandments, verse 22, and do what pleases him. That was Jesus. John, those were taking John out of his gospel. John eight twenty nine. Jesus said, Father, you always hear me, prayer, because I always do those things that please you. See how they link together? See, that's what's missing in our lives, maybe as Christians. You know why? Because we don't have that confident heart. We're not really sure where we stand with God. Therefore, we don't pray. We're not on our knees beseeching for other people. We're not. Because we don't really know about ourselves. The Bible says, what is that commandment? Verse 23. And this is his commandment that we believe. The first usage of the word believe in all this epistle so far And notice how he's going to use it. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who he is, what he's done, everything he's commanded. See, I believe in Jesus Christ, it says. Conjunction, ready? I believe in him and I love one another. It's not separate. They are together. I believe in him and I love like him. They have to be together And the word he uses is agape. There are three types of love in the first century. Eros was the love of sexual love, but it's more than that. Its basic meaning is complete intoxication. I I grew up in Bible college. When I went to college, I should say, I went to Bible college, and they had what was called the dating parlor. Even the name doesn't sound romantic, right? The dating part. You can go in there and they had people watching. They had people sitting in there so that you didn't try to hold hands or do anything like that. So you couldn't hold hands, but you could sit on a couch next to each other. I never, I dated girls in college, never took them to the dating parlor. No way. I've been in the dating parlor. I walked through it for entertainment value. Because girls and guys would be sitting there and they're looking at each other, and they're not saying anything. We came up with the term cow eyes. Have you ever heard of cow eyes? They're like this. <laughs> I love you. I know. And then I, we had, back then, they didn't have, again, no cell phones. So we had one pay phone on the wall in each dorm floor. So I'd be hearing this guy on the phone, 10 o'clock at night. He'd been on there for two hours. You hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. Puke. Okay? Eros and total intoxication, right? It's a wonderful passenger, but a horrible driver in your life. It cannot be trusted. Eros. Second kind, phileo. Jesus does not say, here's how you phileo one another. That's what my command is, phileo. No, he doesn't say eros. He doesn't say phileo. Phileo was the idea of friendship. Philadelphia is the Greek word. We get our city from it, the city of brotherly love, or shove, as some would say. 
It's an affinity with one another. It's people that you like and you have good friendships. You have things in common. You grew up the same place. You know a lot of the same people, same interests, whatever. There's a lot of commonalities. It's basically saying, I really, really like you. If you know anything about the early church, didn't meet in buildings like this. They didn't have any buildings. They met in homes. First century history tells us the average church had about 30 different people in it in a, little, in a house of a wealthy patron who, who subsidized or you know, supported all the things that they did. And in that 30-person church in that home was usually people of different economic, ethnic, and social standings by far. A lot of diversity, just like Faith Baptist Church. And can I tell you, as one author said, it's a fellowship of difference. They were so far from one another. And you think, that's really great. Isn't it awesome? We have that. It is. But in the first century, nobody had that. No one in society had that. Everybody, if you were white, you stayed there. If you were this, if you were Roman, if you were Scythian, you were slave, you were slaves and people who were free, they never, if you were senator and you were this, no one got together with anyone who wasn't just like them. So I can tell you this, and God knew this, Eros love won't keep a group like that together. Phileo love doesn't have a chance You'll never fulfill those commandments with that kind of love. It's agape love. That's what you have to have. See, agape love is this, and I define it, as it's acting in the best interest of others regardless of how you feel or they feel. Let me see it again. Agape love is acting in the best interest of others regardless of how you feel or how they feel. It's, as one author said, agape is steel commitment. It's steel. It's hard. It doesn't waver. See, this is what Jesus says. This is my commandment. You believe in God? You trust in Jesus? Yes, that's awesome. You better show it if you want assurance in your life. You better show it by practicing, not eros, not phileo. You better show it by practicing agape love, self-sacrificial love, love that puts someone else above yourself in your marriage, in your home, with your kids, at church, with people in your life. See, by this first indicator light, verse 19, he says, let me give you the second one. He says, and by this we know that he abides in us and the spirit whom he has given to us. See, the whole book is about you abide in God, verse 24. God abides in you, and if you abide, see, he's always repeating that. The word means to remain. It means to stay in your life. How many of you are coffee drinkers? How many of you are hot tea drinkers? A lot of prayer needed. I don't know much about hot tea drink. I'm a coffee drinker. But there are those not fully mature yet are doing the hot tea thing. And I've been told by some of these people that there are only two types of hot tea drinkers. There are dippers and there are dunkers. They take the little bag and they go like this. What is that? What is that for? Then there are people who dunk it and they go... And it just sits in the bottom of it, right? There's this and that. You see what John's saying? Abide in him. See, there's dipper Christianity. Jesus, oh, no, no, no. a little bit, oh, keep his command, not that. You know what he's saying? You know what true Christianity looks like? Oh, you dunk it in there. You're in God. God is in you. 
Your word, his word abides in you. Get it in there. Submerge yourself. Saturate yourself in God. See, don't be a spiritual dipper, a dunker. See, that's the indicator light will go off. You start dipping. He wants you to abide in him because that's the only way. When you stay in him, him and you, and his word does. See, Pastor Walker, how do I love like that? That's what you have to do. Keep submerging yourself in God and his word. See, this morning, ask yourself, be honest. Any indicator lights going off on your dashboard? Causing questions? Let me tell you, I was 12 through 15 when it happened to me, and that could be some of the young people here this morning too. But let me tell you this, it's not limited to young people. All kinds of people, all kinds of ages. Can I tell you this? It's a horrible place to be. I lived it for three years. I know. Don't stay there. You can move from condemning heart to confident heart. You can let the indicator lives go off today. But if you ignore them like I did, you do it to your own peril. The response God's looking for this morning is say this. Hey, you know what? Indicator light is going off. It's time for me to take my car, my car into the shop. Oh, see, Jesus did. When I broke my arm like that, he made me take my car into the shop. Turn my life around. I could honestly say without being too dramatic, I wouldn't stand here today if he didn't. It's all of his grace. What about you? Which one of those hearts do you have? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, you might be here this morning, new to Faith Baptist Church, or maybe you've been here for a while, but whatever the case is, you might say this morning, Pastor Walker, I don't really have that assurance. Oh, I know what I believe. I know what the Bible says. I know all of that. I know it very well. But I set that side beside my beliefs and my behavior Loving other people like that. Oh, it's not that I hate other people. I don't hate other people. But maybe you ignore them just like you ignore the indicator light that you know is going off this morning in your heart. Now, I challenge you today. If you know Jesus and the indicator light is going on, tell him. Maybe tell him right now. Jesus I'm the tin man. I don't just need a heart. I need your heart. That's what I'm asking. Not an eros love, not a phileo love, an agape love. See, that's what he's asking you this morning. Do you have that? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Walker, I don't have that. And And the reason is because I don't have Jesus. I really don't know him. Oh, I know about him. I don't know if I know him personally. Oh, if you don't have his life, you can't have his love. You could come. Oh, I'll be here briefly after the service today. We have small groups to follow, but I'll be down front for a few moments. If you'd like to come, set up an appointment this week. We can talk together about your heart condition and where you really stand with God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you are for us in Jesus. Thank you, Father, that your heart is greater.
and your love for us greater. When ours fails you, yours never fails us. Blessed be your name. I pray that for those who are struggling with a condemning heart today, as you work in their hearts today, I pray that they wouldn't ignore the lights any longer. Let them pull into the shop, begin to change, that they might have a confident heart in all that you are for them in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.